One day, some Pharisees and teachers of the law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. And they noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. See, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. And this is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as the ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And so the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our ages-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God for you ignore God's law and you substitute your own tradition. And then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of their father or mother must be put to death. But you, Pharisees, you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. And in this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes out from your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd and his disciples asked him, what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either, he asked? Can't you see that the food you put in your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart. It just passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. And by saying this, he was declaring that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added again, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these vile things come from within and they are what defile you. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. And right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. But since she was a Gentile, born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in the bed, and the demon was gone. Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people dragged, begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. 
And Jesus led him away from the crowd so that they could be alone. And he put his fingers into the man's ears and then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven, he sighed and he said, Ephatha, which means be opened. And instantly the man could hear perfectly and his tongue was freed so that he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news because they were completely amazed. And they said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. And about this time, another large crowd had gathered and the people ran out of food again. And Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way for some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground and then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. And a few small fish were found too. So Jesus also blessed those and told the disciples to distribute them. And they ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day. And Jesus sent them home after they had eaten their fill. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and he crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. And when the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had come back, they arrived and started to argue with him. Testing him, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. And when he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. He got back into the boat and he left them and he crossed over to the other side of the lake. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And as they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And at this, the disciples began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. But Jesus knew what they were saying. And he said, are you still arguing about not having bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? Don't you understand even yet, he asked them. And then when they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal them. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and he said, can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said, I, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. And then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly. Welcome to Shook, episode seven. I don't know about you, but when we started this series, I was a little skeptical that this theme would play out for nine weeks. This idea that every week Jesus would do something so disruptive, so um, shaking, uh, that we'd be having something worth talking about every time. And yeah, I don't know about you, but I have found that it, whether it's Dion Garrett or Steve Hauer, or whether I've had to wrestle with the text myself, Jesus really does continue to do shocking 
upstarting things. And so I've been really blessed to just really look at Jesus with fresh eyes. Not only that, I don't know about you, I've also especially appreciated when, when Dion or Steve have used methods in their preaching that mirror and reflect that um, shaking thing that Jesus is doing each week. For example, in episode three, when Jesus was preaching radical inclusiveness, uh, I loved how Dion recreated an actual VIP insider's lounge up here on the stage and, and really showed what it looked like to keep people out or to let everybody in. Or in episode four of Shook, uh, when Steve Hauer was preaching on um, how Jesus used stories to upend the conventional wisdom of the day, uh, how Steve just used lots and lots of modern day parables of his own experiences to convey some truth. I've really loved it when the method of the message matched the method of Jesus in that particular week. And so the method of Jesus this week appears to be that he yells a lot and makes everybody feel really bad about themselves. You guys ready? I'll do my best. I'm going to try and see if I can make everyone here feel like a terrible person. Let's do this. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, I'm going to test all of your faith here this morning. Uh, and again, I, I'm, my goal is to really just try to make you feel like an awful, terrible Christian. So let's start with something that maybe is easier, maybe won't get as many people. How many of you think that at some point uh, in the history of the world, there existed creatures that don't exist today. There were, there were woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and dodo birds and dinosaurs that have now gone extinct and they're not alive anymore. Anyone here believe in that? Think that's true? What terrible Christians you are. I'm, I'm shocked. Because according to 17th century Christianity, the fact that you would deny God's sovereignty over creation like that you think God would make an amazing creature just to let it die off? What kind of God do you think we have? And your arrogance. You think human beings could disrupt God's creation and actually change things such that an animal could die off? You know, how much power do you think human beings have over God's creation? I bet you believe in climate change too, don't you? <laughs> All right, that was, I maybe started too hard. All right, that was kind of a high-level theological thing. My apologies for making it too hard. Let's, let's do with something maybe a little more everyday applicable. Let, let's have a little modesty test, shall we? Maybe that's going to be a little more real life. I want you to look at this picture. How modest are they dressed in this picture, would you say? All right, if you think that they are dressed appropriately modestly, would you go ahead and raise your hand right now? You're okay with the way they're dressed? Okay. You disgust me. I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with the morality of Victorian era Christianity, but you can see her ankles. And him, he's not even wearing a hat. How indecent can we be just having his head uncovered before God and man? Seriously, I'm really questioning what kind of people we got here in church this morning. All right, I'm sorry, it's probably still too hard. Let me, let me just take it easy. Who here's ever taken communion? Any of you take communion? All right, you all taking me? All right, okay, all right. This should be hopefully a little easier for you. How many of you, when you take communion, you get the wafer, and then, and then when you put it in your mouth, you chew it and then swallow it? Who does that? I can't believe you would disrespect the body of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, like that. Why can't you just let it respectfully dissolve on your tongue the way 17th century Catholics understood it? Huh? I can't believe just chewing the body of Christ like it's a sandwich. Ah. Terrible. 
What are y'all doing here? All right, you know, I, at this point, I probably already know what kind of people you are, but maybe just one more. How many of you, how many of you dare have life insurance? Do any of you have life insurance here right now? Ugh. That you would not trust the providence of God for your life? That you would engage in usury? There are some 19th century Lutherans that have a real bone to pick with you right now. Can't believe this place. And that's just the older Christians. What about the contemporary ones? Do I need to ask the Baptists or the traditionalist Lutherans or the Amish about what they think about you right now? I mean, I'm pretty sure you guys drink beverages that have been aged a little too long. Or you're singing worship songs that haven't aged long enough. Or you're using technology that was invented after 1600. And as lighthearted as I'm trying to be in this moment, that there's a, a deeper important truth that, that we've really got to pay attention to this morning, which is this, that there is something wrong with the world. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. The world is messed up, screwed up, broken. And we have to wrestle and understand why. And all of us do subconsciously. Why? Why is the world broken? Whose fault is it that the world is the way it is right now? And if I were to ask Victorian-era Christians or 17th-century Catholic Christians or 19th-century Lutheran Christians, their answer would be, well, look at you guys. Look at the way you're violating God's law and moral practice. And they'd blame you. Or if we look at this story from today, there's a reason Jesus has some harsh words for people because they've got an answer too. If you were to ask the Pharisees what's wrong with the world, they would have a very clear answer. It's all the cruddy, immoral, unrightly behaving people around us. In fact, you might have noticed there were three practices that the Pharisees used, just you know, three out of many, to show that they were better than everyone else. You see, the reason the world is messed up was because the Pharisees were good. They washed their hands. They gave money to God. They ate holy and clean things. And the reason the world was messed up was for all those people out there, those Gentiles that didn't do it. Jesus' disciples who weren't washing their hands. See, they had a very simple answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? All those other screw-ups around us. Now, it's easy to judge the Pharisees because by and large, we don't necessarily care about these things in the same way they do. Like maybe the washing hands, like we do a lot of sanitizing gel these days. But you've got stuff on your list, right? In fact, even as I was giving you those examples of moral issues, you were all in your head figuring out reasons to discount those things. Oh, well, those people were, were stupid back then. They didn't understand things back then. Oh, they were, you know, they were so puritanical with their dress codes, you know, right? You were finding reasons to discount and discredit and deny this idea that those people might judge or condemn your practice of faith, right? And in fact, as we look at this list that the Pharisees happen to have, there are things that you and I would put on this list right now reasons why we look at the people around us and I know why the world's messed up and it's because of you. It's because maybe your sexual failings, you know, other people have these sexual failings, that's why the world's messed up. Or maybe it's because they don't attend church regularly and that's, that's why I'm better than them. Maybe it's because of the media they choose to consume because you know that's got nudity in it. Maybe it's the way they vote, the way they raise their kids. You see, this isn't just a problem the Pharisees had 2,000 years ago. This is a problem we have today, which is that when we're confronted with a broken world, we blame others. 
We compare ourselves positively to them and we come up with reasons why they're the problem, not me. And now Jesus comes onto the scene with some of the harshest words we've seen from him yet. And he says something very consistently and clearly to everyone involved. I don't know if you caught it. There was a theme in the language Jesus was using. He kept saying to people over and over again, can you not see, can you not hear? This is what he said to his disciples. These are his friends. These are the people he supposedly likes. He calls them dullards. And then he says, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? See, Jesus is saying there's a problem here, but the problem is not that other people's morality doesn't live up to your self-chosen scorecard. The problem is that you're blind and deaf and you need to see rightly. But the amazing thing about Jesus is that he doesn't just rebuke and condemn, he actually does something about it. When he sees blind and deaf people, what does he do? He sees a deaf man. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. You can't hear. Jesus is going to make it so you can hear. You can't see what happens when he sees a blind man. Jesus puts his hand on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. In this episode today, the Pharisees, the disciples, they were blind, they were deaf, they were confused. But Jesus saw a Gentile woman, a blind man, a deaf man. He gave them ears and eyes to understand clearly. And so we have an opportunity now to engage with this shocking truth that Jesus is going to present to us today, to actually change the filters that we've used these lenses that say, oh, the problem with the world is what's going on out there and and lifting ourselves up at the expense of others and to actually look with new eyes and to listen with new ears. I'll tell you right now, it's gonna be really hard. It's not a fun truth that Jesus lays down for us today. You see, after he's told people, open your eyes, open your ears, listen, understand, this is what he then says to them. It's what he says to us. Jesus went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And then he lists them. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. What's wrong with the world, Jesus says? You are. Your heart, the evil thoughts that well up from inside of you, that's what's wrong with the world. Not other people's moral failings, not their lack of good religion, the anger, the envy, the malice, the foolishness, the arrogance that's inside of you. And so I'm going to tell you, that's not a fun thing to hear from Jesus. I'd rather stick with the miraculous healings. In fact, it's funny is that someone um, who's not necessarily known, in fact, isn't a Christian or someone who takes uh, the Bible as any sort of um, source for truth or wisdom, Carl Jung, who's one of the, the preeminent psychiatrists of our time, he had this to say about the human condition. He said, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own souls. This isn't even a guy that believes in biblical morality, and yet he's noticed that people, when they look at their souls, they see dark things that they don't like. And so we'll go to any extreme 
to not have to do it. Which means, this is where I want you to have eyes to see, let's look again at what the Pharisees are doing, what we are so tempted to do, but let's look at it not with eyes that are blind or ears that don't hear, let's look at it clearly with the lens and the filter that Jesus gives us. Because the reason I think we don't wanna face our souls, the reason we don't wanna take Jesus's words to heart uh, is because ultimately, at the end of the day, I wanna be a good guy. I wanna be the hero in my own story. And I sure don't think I try to be an evil person. Like maybe I got some temptations, but at the end of the day, I'm trying to do good things. And if I mess up, well, it's an accident. And so we'll do anything not to have to face a truth that might have to make me think that I'm not the good person I think, you know, I want to think that I am. All right, so here are the stories that we end up telling ourselves. So this is the first story, and it's the story of the Pharisees. The story is, no, no, no I'm good. I'm a good person, and here's, why, here's how I know, because other people are evil. This is that comparison scorecard metric, right? Other people mess up, other people do immoral things, other people have behaviors that aren't in line with God's truth. And as long as I can live in that comparison, I'm okay. Now the problem is, this, actually, this mentality actually makes the world more screwed up, more evil. See, it's fascinating. If you'd ask the Pharisees where the threats were, that's the Gentiles are the problem. And yet Jesus didn't feel the need to warn his disciples about going into Gentile territory and talking to a Gentile woman. You remember when he needed to warn them? When they came back into Pharisee land, that's when he said, beware the yeast, the corruption of the Pharisees, these holier-than-thou people. He says, beware of their corruption. And here's why. Because if this is your narrative, then other, if other people are evil, then guess what? You get to demonize them. You get to exclude them. You get to treat them awfully. Because why not? They're evil. That's just appropriate to treat evil people in evil ways. And then not only that, it, it's bad because it creates evil and injustice even within the good people because now if I'm good by definition because I've compared myself, well now anything I choose to do must also then be good and all sorts of atrocities get justified if this is your narrative. And I'll tell you, this is the narrative I grew up with. It's the narrative I think a lot of the church has had, this idea that no, 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 we in the church are the good people and the other people outside are evil. And yet Jesus called this actually more toxic than even the pagan unbelievers of his day. And in fact, I would say our culture today has reacted very strongly against this, and I think it's a good and a holy and an appropriate thing that they have. And I'd say here's how most of our culture, after they've rejected this, after, they, after they've seen the evil and injustice that comes from this narrative, they've swung the pendulum the other way. This is the new narrative of our culture. No, 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 no. I'm good. I'm the hero of my own story, but I'm good because, this is great, nobody is evil. See, this is perfect because now I get to still be a good person and I also get to do away with all of the abuses and the injustices and the, the harsh judgmental treatment of other people. And I'll tell you, I'm actually very sympathetic to this narrative. There's something really powerful about this. I, I think it taps into a piece of God's truth that we are all um, have dignity in the image of God. And so this narrative makes us treat people better, does it not? If nobody's evil, then that just means we're all good. And yeah, it's led to some things where like, oh, just kind of whatever you want goes, and there's no really bad behaviors. It's just whatever, you know, you do you and whatever makes you feel good. But at the end of the day, is that so bad? 
I mean, I'll tell you this, historically through my life, I have personally felt much more comfortable and like I've had better friendship and community with the unbelievers and the post-Christians around me than I've often felt within the church. And this is why. Because when, I, when I'm in community with unbelievers or, or post-Christians, they're not judging me. They don't think there's anything wrong with me. They're willing to just accept me as I am. And they just like me. And I don't feel like I have to hide all these things. I don't, I don't have to pretend I'm better than I'm not. I have to, to keep my opinions secret because if I shared them, people would judge me. Like they just, they just take me as I am. I'm incredibly sympathetic to this narrative, this point of view. The only problem with it is that it doesn't actually hold up, right? It, it ultimately collapses under its own weight. Because at some point you do have to face the fact that there is evil and brokenness in the world. And if nobody's evil, how do you explain, you know, all of the, the crises that, that abound, all of the hatred and the anger and the injustice? Like, how do you explain if nobody's evil? And well, you, oh, well, it's the system. The system has problems. You know, but again, our desires are good. There's just things that, that go wrong. But ultimately, you have to face the fact that, no, 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 no. There comes a point where even people with this narrative, they draw the line somewhere. Oh, your marriage isn't fulfilling to you? Well, that's fine. Go find a new marriage, a better wife, you know, whatever you need to do. Just you, because there's nothing evil. You've got good desires. Go find it. But then if you try to say that, for example, about, well, my kids are really bugging me. I don't want to be a parent anymore. Like, you're like oh, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. You still got to take care of your kids. You can't abandon your kids. Abandon your wife all you want. But kids, they have a claim. Right? I mean, right? I, that's what I see in the culture around me. Because for everybody, there does come the line. There comes a point where you do draw like, whoa, 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 that's too far. This, this ultimately falls short. And in fact, it's both of these narratives, this idea that I'm evil be, or I'm good because others are evil or I'm good because nobody's evil, that Jesus gives the lie when he says the evil is in your hearts. He debunks both of these with the same statement. But he doesn't just stop there. See, if he stopped there, then he'd just be like Carl Jung, just noticing that there's all sorts of junk going on inside of us. But he doesn't. What he does is he short-circuits this human way of life. See, every human being ever responds in kind with what's given to them. And so if there is evil deep down inside all of us and we are acting towards others with hatred, with anger, with envy, with greed, with selfishness, people respond with all the same things. Anger begets anger, hate begets hate, evil begets evil. And Jesus was the first entity to come along and to say, bring it all. Bring your evil, all of the worst things you can do and heap it on my shoulders. And instead of responding in kind, he responded with love and acceptance and compassion. In fact, he let our evil go so far as to actually nail him to the cross all of the worst sentiments of humanity heaped on him as they scorned a man who did nothing wrong. And as our evil killed him, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. You see, Jesus sees deep down into our hearts. He sees the evil thoughts and the desires that are there, but he loves us anyway. And then he doesn't leave us there either. You see, after three days and he rose again, he then, when he ascended to heaven, released his personal spirit into each and every one of your hearts. And so this heart that Jesus had accurately described, I and mean, let's face it, as a place that's filled with all of the evil thoughts and all the evil desires, Jesus then planted something else in that same heart, his spirit, which is a wellspring of life and love. 
And he offers us this opportunity to let his heart be in ours, to walk alongside him on a journey that lets the good things that gush out of his heart overflow into ours and drown out the evil desires. He invites us to let his spirit fill our heart with love and graciousness and gentleness and kindness and peace and joy. And he says, you don't have to stay in this place of evil thoughts and desires. You can actually live in a new place. And in doing that, he gives us a new story. I am good, but here's why. Because the evil inside of me has been redeemed. Because the God of love took something that was unlovely and made it beautiful, my heart. And what's amazing about this is if this becomes your story, then you actually get to partner with Jesus on a life of holiness and joy. You actually get to say, Jesus, let me walk alongside you. Let me follow you. Let me be with you hand in hand as you expose these dark corners of my soul. And as you replace them instead, joyfully, freely with something better. See, this is what Jesus is offering to every one of you right now today. A new way to live. A new way to fix what's wrong with the world. Not by comparing yourself to others, but by owning and embracing the fullness of Jesus' rescue and redemption of your heart. And when he does this, it changes everything around you. See, I'll, I'll tell you this, guys. I kind of came out of this journey a couple years ago because I had an interaction with someone that went so badly that, uh, in fact, Dion had to call, pull me aside and say, hey, Doug, I think maybe it would be time for you to do some more of this wrestling with your own heart. What's going on deep down inside that's making you so, so angry and frustrated all the time? And that was two years ago. That kicked off two years of my facing the demons not doing what Jung says and just running away and hiding from my own soul, but facing it. And what I've found has been amazing and transformative, and it's this, is that what I thought was going to be a shameful, dark, agonizing experience has actually led to more joy in my life. Because even as I've faced the dark things in my heart, what I've also faced simultaneously is that none of those things scared Jesus off, that none of those things trump his love. In fact, he looks at those and says, it's all right, Doug, you, you can handle that. And little by little, I've embarked on a journey with him over the last couple of years that is unlike anything I'd been before when I was in the Pharisaic church religion comparison mindset. And what's been amazing too is it's changed the way I see other people as well. All of that time looking at my own heart with Jesus by my side has given me this other part of the story. See, not only am I good because even inside of me has been redeemed but so is yours. Which means that everyone you see, everyone around you, has had the same evil redeemed for them. And they are on a journey with Jesus right here, right now. Which means they deserve my respect, they deserve my compassion, they deserve my love and support for the journey that they're on. The one thing they don't deserve anymore is my treating them as if they're the problem as if they're the evil that's responsible for the brokenness of this world. And I'll tell you this, guys, <laughs> this two years as I've been trying to relentlessly focus on the evil inside of my own heart, I don't have time to worry about the evil in yours anymore. 
I get to the end of the day and, I, and my wife, oh, how was your day? And, and, and yeah, I've been confronted with a lot of people and a lot of brokenness, but at the end, I'm spending so much time just dealing with the anger and the envy and the shame and the selfishness and the pride and all of the things that are going on. I don't have time to deal with your junk. And I just gotta trust and assume that you're dealing with it yourselves. I gotta assume that you're on this journey and that until such time as I have rooted out fully all of that evil in me, until such time as the Holy Spirit is 100% transcendent in my heart and all the evil is gone, then and only then do I maybe have time and energy to focus on the evil that you need to get out of yours. And I'll just go ahead and say this, that's never gonna happen. You look at an old Lutheran liturgy that says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I will never get to a point where I've done a sufficient enough job rooting out my own evil that I've got time or a right or a calling from God to call out yours. On the one hand, I think that's a good thing. On the other hand, I think you might be thinking right now, but hang on, doesn't that leave evil in the world unchecked? If we're just spending all of our time focused on our own hearts and our own evil tendencies, then doesn't that just let the world itself go to hell in a handbasket? Aren't there people out there that still need correction? Shouldn't I be up here denouncing more things in the society around us? And here's what I'll say to that, no. Because what I have found is when I'm on this journey, when I'm asking Jesus to expose and shine a light in the darkness of my heart, it not only makes me better, that's actually the way I make the world better too. See, I used to think I make the world better by calling out the evil, by calling out the moral failings, by calling out the injustices in the world. But what I've come to discover is that I make the world better by focusing almost exclusively on the evil in my heart. And here's why. Because I don't know what's in yours. I have no access to the evil that Jesus might be working on you in your heart. That is only for you to know and discover. And if I try to presume, I promise you, I'm gonna mess it up. And evil's actually gonna run unchecked. I'll give you two quick examples to, to maybe help explain that. All right, for example, think of my son. I love my son. I know him intimately. I've known him his entire life, right? You'd think that if I was gonna call out like an evil or, or a sinful behavior, like my son is someone that I know pretty well. And in fact, that's how I was raised. It's probably how you were raised too, right? I had two Air Force parents and I was raised with my and my sister, me and my sister, we were the problem with the world. Our misbehavior was the problem with the world. And it was my parents' job to correct our misbehavior, right? My parents were good parents. We were disobedient, rebellious kids and they needed to refine and shape us by cracking down. I mean, it's what I grew up with and it worked out relatively well. I'm a normal person. And yet, this new way of thinking has changed so much in my family. In fact, I've been reading a book and if, if you are in this season of life, I strongly recommend Parenting from the Inside Out. Throw out every other parenting book you've ever read. Parenting from the Inside Out. Because it is a grace-based way of understanding how we do things. And so let me give you this example. Bedtime is awful in the Moss household. It takes so long. It's like an hour and a half from start to finish before they're actually all in bed. And then even then, they keep getting out of bed, my kids. And so there was this night a few weeks ago where Sai, my son Sai, he had gotten out of bed like three times. 
And I, you know, and, and always on some fabricated excuse, oh, I need water, I need to go to the bathroom. You went to the bathroom like 15 minutes ago. Like, how can you possibly need to go again? Three times he'd gotten up. And then as I'm finally, he's down, and it's been a few minutes, and he's quiet. I'm like, okay, I think I got this. And so I'm ready to just settle down, sit on the couch with my wife, watch a show, unwind, get some me time. And out of the corner of my eye, what do I see? But the motion. And according to every parenting that I ever witnessed or that I ever read before this, he is disobedient. He has done the wrong thing, and I've been patient and gracious three times. This is the fourth time, and I went in there, and I blasted him, and I just laid into him. What do you think you're doing? How many times do you have to talk about this? You are the most disobedient kid, and he starts weeping, and he had a note in his hand that he had been trying to sneak in to put on my pillow, and the note said, Dad, I'm so sorry that I was disobedient tonight, and I just want to be a good son. How wrong was my frame? How blind were my eyes? Because I saw disobedience and disrespect and rebellion in him. But what if in that moment instead, I had paused and said, what is the evil inside of me that is making me react so strongly to this moment? And I would have instead seen greed, because this is my time, right? I spent the last hour and a half on you kids. I, this is daddy time. And there was greed and selfishness in my heart, and that was what was actually driving my behavior. Not correction, not appropriate, healthy, holy discipline of a boy that needed correction. It was my evil, my heart. And that moment could have gone completely differently if I'd admitted that maybe I don't know what's going on in my son and that maybe there's a bigger problem with me right now than with him. And that's someone I know really, really well. That's someone I love more than life itself. Now ask yourself, how well do you think you do judging the evil of those that you don't love in this world, those that you don't care about? I'll tell you this, I had an interaction recently with a, with a Christian brother who espoused a political opinion that I believe is about as toxic and hateful of an opinion as anyone can have, that's responsible for all sorts of evil in this country right now, that's responsible for the black eye that Christianity has in our culture. And I wanted to blast him so bad. In fact, I knew I was preaching, so I was like, oh, I can't wait. We're talking about the evil in human hearts. I'm gonna let you have, I'm gonna let my whole church know how evil this is. And yet, had I done that, you realize evil would have stayed completely unchecked, right? It wouldn't have changed his heart in any way, and it also wouldn't have changed mine. In fact, I would have gone out feeling really proud and self-righteous that I addressed this evil, when in fact I didn't face the very anger and hatred in my heart towards him that I was blaming him for having. See, here's the thing. If we're trying to correct the world, I promise you we are inflicting more evil and injustice upon it. But here's where we have an even bigger promise from Christ. That if we do this work with him, if we keep our focus relentlessly on ourselves, he honors it not just in ourselves, but in the world. You see, Jesus was opening eyes and unstopping ears in this passage today. But 700 years before this moment that we read about, God's prophet Isaiah gave us a clue about what the Messiah would look like and what he would do. 
He said, when you're feeling despairing and like evil is winning and like the world is broken beyond repair, hear this, a Messiah is coming. And with this news, strengthen those who have tired hands, encourage those who have weak knees, save those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy all evil. He is coming to save you. And here's how you'll recognize him. When he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the desert land, and streams will water the wasteland. And a great road will go through that once evil place, and it will be named the Highway of Holiness. Lions will not lurk along its course, nor any other ferocious beast. There will be no other dangers. Only the redeemed will walk on it. Those whose evil hearts have been ransomed by the Lord will return. And they will enter God's holy city with singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning and all evil will disappear. And they will be filled with joy and gladness. We're not letting evil off the hook when we reject the comparison game. We're putting our focus and our hearts in the one place that we've actually been empowered and called to do good. The place where Jesus has asked us to partner with him. Let him transform the evil in us into light and love and joy and goodness. And when we do that internal work, externally the world gets redeemed. The desert becomes a lush garden. The parched land is watered with those waters of joy and goodness and peace and kindness. That is the shocking thing that Jesus promised to do. And it's what he does promise to do with you and with our world right now. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks for opening our eyes and our ears, helping us to see that the things and the people that we blame for the problems of this world are just red herrings, false filters for us. Thank you for exposing our hearts, but not for the sake of shaming us, for the sake of redeeming us and replacing our own evil with your own goodness and love and grace. Lord, partner with us, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can do the joyful work of partnering with you to root out any evil that's left so that we can start to be agents of your grace in this parched and hurting land. We pray in your holy name, amen. See, the comparison trap says that we're different from the people around us, but what Jesus says is actually you are exactly the same because every person you see has been redeemed by his work on the cross. Everyone has been given a new identity in his name, and that includes you, includes the people around you. So let's sing about that today.